the persecution of God's people uh, throughout history is a sad reality. Uh, John Allen is a journalist and an author and wrote a few months ago in The Spectator that the global war on Christians is the greatest story never told in the 21st century so far. He quotes the International Society for Human Rights, a secular group with members in 38 nation states worldwide, who say things like 80% of all acts of religious discrimination in the world today are directed at Christians. 100,000 Christians die every year. That's 11 every hour. And in 2012, Christians faced some form of discrimination in 139 countries. That's almost three quarters of all the nations in the world. Those statistics are staggering. But then you're not that surprised by these, I'm sure. Not when we've experienced in our own lives, to some degree, alienation at home or school or work for believing the kind of things that we as Christians believe. The kind of things that just grate with the cultural norms of life in Edinburgh. And we're especially not that surprised at these statistics when we hear reports of the plight of Christians at the hands of organizations like IS and places like Mosul, who are people who are told every day, you have two options, convert or die. How do God's people live in times like these? How do God's people cope with threat and alienation? How do they stand firm in persecution, even if a sword is high over your neck? Is it worth it? has to be one of the questions that we consider. Well, Daniel 7 helps to answer these questions. The whole book, you see, was written to encourage God's people who had been carted off into exile. They were living in a land that is not their own, as strangers, as slaves. That was their existence. And it was a terrible, terrible time. Because Daniel knew what persecution felt like. He had witnessed firsthand the brutality of the Babylonian Empire, the ones who had carted Israel off in the first of three installments into slavery. He had seen this brutality firsthand. He had been targeted even for his beliefs. We saw that in chapter 6. What does the word of God have to say to Daniel and to us to strengthen us in hard times? Well, the first thing that God lays out for us is in verses 1 to 8. A very real picture, the terrifying reality of a world of evil. And here we have these pictures of beasts on earth. Verse 2 starts with a churning sea. That's an ominous sign to start with. Sea in biblical imagery is a picture of chaos. And out of this sea comes four pictures of really human godlessness and utter brutality. Seemingly worsening as we go along. Now remember what I said earlier. Careful reading of the text often discloses the true meaning of what's going on. Even in apocalyptic literature. And verse 17, praise the Lord, provides the interpretation for us. The four great beasts are the four kings or kingdoms that rise from the earth. Okay? So when we look at these beasts in verses 1 to 8, we're not describing dinosaurs. We're describing kingdoms. 
what each kingdom is like. And the first, verse 4, was like a lion with wings of an eagle. Now, what is a lion? How is it known? It was the king of the beasts. The eagle was known as the king of the birds. So what do you have a picture of if you have king of land and air? Well, a picture of authority, a picture of power. And that is the way that this first kingdom or empire was spelled out. Then there was a second beast that looked like a bear in verse 5, raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. Man alive, this kingdom is fierce. He has not even finished his last meal and he's moving on to devour something else. Then in the third beast, verse 6, looked like a leopard. Now, if ancient Babylonians were playing family fortunes and you asked the question, name something that symbolizes swiftness, they would hit their buzzer and they would say, a leopard. Okay, something fast. It's a leopard. It's fast, but it's especially fast, this beast. It's got wings, four wings, four heads too, which gives the impression of being able to see and to move in all four directions. In other words, this kingdom is going to spread rapidly in all four directions. Now, if the first three beasts were scary, the fourth beast is terrifying. So terrifying, in fact, that there isn't even a creature in existence that, that can be used to compare it to. All that Daniel can say in verse 7 is that it's terrifying, frightening, and powerful. Okay? This is a beast with iron teeth used to crush its victims. If anyone was left over, it tells us it trampled them. In other words, this is a picture of total destruction. A beast that is said to devour the whole earth. But then Daniel tells us in the second part of verse 7 that this was different from the other beasts in that it had ten horns. Again, thankfully, verse 24 explains for us these are ten kings that come from this one empire or kingdom. But look at what happens next. Three horns are extracted to make room for a little horn. And this little horn, this king that comes, is perceptive, hence the eyes. And boastful, hence the mouth. And this is a little horn that says great things. Now look with me at verses 21 and 25, because it gets worse. We see later on in the passage what happens, what this king actually does. Verse 21. He wages war against God's people and defeats them. Verse 25. He speaks against the most high God. He changes set times and laws of God's people. He says, you're not worshipping this God here, you're, you're worshipping me. You're not doing what he says you've to do at whatever time, you will do what I say you've got to do at whatever time. He is taking total control. And God's people will for a time be delivered into his hand and the persecution, it says, will be global. This little horn will devour the whole earth. Now people can be very imaginative when it comes to tracing back in history to try and identify who these empires represent. There are there are various interpretations. There are mainly two, really, that have any credence. 
Uh, one being that one is the, Babylon, the first one is the Babylonian Empire. Everybody pretty much agrees with that because the, the comments of this beast being humbled by the wings being torn, out, torn off, lifted from the ground so it stood on two feet like a human being, the mind of a human being given to it, kind of harks back to the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar and him being restored again from his beastliness to be a man who acknowledged that God was the sovereign king. And then you have the... Rec- the, the the comments, the uh, suggestion that the Medo-Persian Empire is the second beast and the Greek Empire, with its, how it spread rapidly, would be the third beast and then the fourth beast, the Roman Empire. Others would say, well, actually, you need to split the Medes and the Persians up and then the Greek Empire is the fourth beast. And they refer to this man called Antiochus Epiphanes and he's the guy 200 years before Jesus came. That's the guy who's the little horn and so on. Well, actually... It misses the point, really, if you try and make too much of an attachment with history. Because you're always going to be left with questions. I commend you. I'm not going to do it in this sermon, you'll be glad to hear. Uh, I commend you to read into it. Study it for yourself. See how it corresponds with passages in the likes of Revelation. But that's not what verses 1 to 8 are meant to do. They're not meant to provide a timeline for us. They're not meant to teach us world history in a sense they're supposed to make you feel scared they're supposed to show you the brutality of human earthly kingdoms Daniel I think would have been Daniel had already been told in chapter 2 of this book by the God who reveals mysteries that Babylon as an empire would be succeeded by other kingdoms then another then another But the dreams didn't see how brutal these kingdoms would be, especially the fourth kingdom, and especially against God's people. But this is what's revealed to him here. And you see the impact that it had on him. Verse 28, my face turned, I was deeply troubled. (laughs) My face turned pale. So what hope is there? Is it worth going on in the faith? Given these beasts that, that rise up even in opposition against God's people. Well, yes, there is. Because the beasts on earth are controlled by heaven. And one day God will destroy them all forever. Isn't this what verses 9 to 14 teach us? There have been hints all along the way that God is in control. Throughout verses 1 to 8, there are little indicators. There's something going on behind the scenes. There are little comments that show something is happening to these kingdoms that is beyond their control. Wings are torn off, lifted up. It was told. It was given authority. By whom? Well, verses 9 to 14 provide us with an answer and also provide us as God's people with the greatest reassurance. Here we have the reassuring reality of a God in control. And we are transported in an instant from the chaos of a churning sea on earth to the calm of a courtroom in heaven. And this fearsome beast, this little horn, is, if you like, crushed between two heavenly realities, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Look with me at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Verse 11 seems to indicate that the little horn, even when all of this has taken place, and the vision is still kind of speaking boastfully, ha me, 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 I'm an eye, awesome. 
And then behind him, someone is setting out thrones. He's not even aware of this. He's so self-absorbed. And the Ancient of Days comes and takes a seat. What a description we have here of God Almighty. The Ancient of Days. Now, we live in a culture that loves youthfulness. To the extent if you call someone ancient, you're, 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 it's really an insult, isn't it? But not in Daniel 7. This is not a picture of frailty, but of power. Not of senility, but of durability. The kingdom that lasts forever. And ruling over the kingdoms that come and go in a few decades, or even a hundred years, whatever, is the eternal one. Forever the ancient of days. The Lord abides forever, says Psalm 9 verse 7. He has established his throne for judgment. Or Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And look at how he's described. He's ready. Verse 9, thrones are set in place. He takes his seat. These are thrones of judgment, probably set up for the saints. Whereas 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, Paul says, don't you know that God's people will judge the world? And God takes his seat. God is still on the throne, Daniel, in other words. This is the vision that he's seeing. Before him, he sees all these beasts, then he sees God is still on the throne. The presiding judge in the courtroom. Now, what do you want a judge to do in a world like ours? In a world of injustice and a world of lies. What kind of judge do you want him to be? Well, you want him to be a holy judge, don't you? You want him to be one who will judge in righteousness in every respect. One in whom there is no corruption whatsoever. And that's exactly what you've got in verse 9. He is righteous. When it describes his appearance in verse 9 of his clothing and his hair being white, the color of purity, he has never compromised in his dealing with men. Never corrupt. Always right. Always hits the nail on the head. Always 100% perceptive. It is impossible for God to be anything but. Then we see at the second part of verse 9 that he is wrathful. His throne that he sits on is flaming with fury. It's not literally on fire, surely. But verse 50, Psalm 50 sorry, communicates to us that our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him. So fire teaching us that there's a, it's a symbol of judgment here. He will consume the wrongdoer and no one can escape his justice. Did you see the wheels? The wheels are on fire, moving in all sorts of different directions. They take his judgment everywhere. Everywhere. And he is lastly regal. What a scene is captured in verse 10 where God attended by a thousand, by a thousand upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands. It's an incredible scene. In other words, Daniel starts to look and he's, he's, he's trying to count how many people are actually here. You know, he's seen these four beasts in their empires. Then he's seen the Ancient of Days and he's trying to see the number of people who are attending him. You know, whether it's, in all likelihood, it's his angels, the divine army. He can't even count them. You know, he's thrown away his abacus. He's just, there's no point. There are countless. Demonstrating again his awesome power. And the books were opened, it says. 
That's a joyful thing for many and a troublesome thing for some. Because every thought, word, and deed, every act of barbarism unrepented of in history, every lie unconfessed recorded, not just of kings, but of all humanity. And verses 11 and 12 tell us that this fourth beast, along with the other three, were judged, destroyed, and thrown into hell. They are not worthy rulers of God's kingdom in the new heaven and new earth. But in verses 13 to 14, we find someone who is the Son of Man. I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. So get this. He's looking, and he says, this figure is like a human being, but he's divine. How do we know that? Well, he's described as coming with the clouds of heaven. Only God is described in those terms, and he is holy. Let's face it. No one can stand in the presence of God except a man who is 100% pure. Yet this son of man can And he's accepted. Clearly, the fire of God's judgment from his throne does not consume him as he's led into the presence of the Ancient of Days. Therefore, he is worthy of that presence. He is divine. And then we realize, as we look at this, it's not just a courtroom scene, it's a coronation scene. It's like a king is being crowned. The Son of Man is given authority. And more than that, glory. To whom does God give glory? To whom does God give glory? The answer is no one. Isaiah 42 verse 8 tells us, I am the Lord and that's my name. I will not give my glory to another. Yet, here in this passage we see he is giving glory and sovereign power to the Son of Man. And he is pleased even to have all nations and peoples of every language worshipping him. Whom? The Son of Man. That's the extent of the gracious, kind, glory giving of the ancient of days. Whom would he give it to? Were he not a divine figure? The son of man. Who is this son of man? Well, fast forward around 600 years. And a man called Jesus is walking the earth. And he's saying... That he's the one who has authority. Authority to judge every individual. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. He has authority to do that divine thing of offering forgiveness of sins. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take up your mat and go home. But he is also the servant who would give his life for his people. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And of course what we read at the start of our service. When Jesus stands before a courtroom of religious leaders... And the main guy, the high priest, is saying, what is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you get what Jesus is claiming for himself? You see how it all connects? 
He's claiming to be the son of man of Daniel 7, a human figure, yes, but a divine figure. The God-man. Free access into the presence of God because he is holy and because he is sinless like God. This is none other in Daniel 7, the eternal son of man. Jesus Christ. He's the one into whose hands judgment has been given. As he says in John 5, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. And God has made believing in this son of man the single determining factor in whether or not you will be with him in that eternity, in that new heaven and new earth. Jesus himself has said, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. And in order to follow him into heaven, you must be born again. Are you? Have you left behind and put to death your old way of life, your sinfulness, and turn to Jesus in faith, trusting in his death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, the very thing that would keep you from standing in the presence of a holy God. If you have not, can I encourage you to? He will receive you. He will not drive you away when you come with sincere heart and genuine repentance and faith. Come to him. He is the one who has authority. And his dominion is the everlasting dominion that will never be destroyed, unlike all of the beasts and empires and kings of history, past, present, future, who will be. This heavenly vision, as I said, presents something of a beast sandwich. (laughs) I love this. Verse 11, the beast is destroyed. This one who is mouthing off, I'm amazing. I'm the king. You know, you're not going to do what he says. You're going to do what I say. But what is he sandwiched in between? (laughs) A heavenly vision of the ancient of days and the son of man. (laughs) Destroyed. That's what's going to happen. It's beautiful. How puny the fourth beast looks compared to the heavenly rule of the ancient of days and the son of man. We quake. Were you scared? I'll tell you what, I've been scared in my, my office all week. I have. I'm not kidding. Because I'm looking ahead and thinking, well, okay, what is the future going to look like? Man, I've got kids. It's great if they have grandkids. Okay, we really have kids. I'll have grandkids. You know, and, and all the way down the line, but like, there's good... You know, Jesus himself says that things are going to get bad towards the end. What's it going to look like? When persecution like this, like even, I don't know, like goes global. That's a scary thought. But how does it make you feel when we see the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man crushing the beast? The one that makes us fearful. The one you can't even describe by comparing it to anything on earth strengthens us that's the kind of impact that sight of the son of man should have on us wouldn't it bring comfort to God's suffering people in Babylon back then in Iraq today in Edinburgh we're not alone God is not losing God is in control and has promised to right every wrong and maintain justice for those who seem to get away with it Well, you would think that it would bring us comfort, but the sight of evil in this text, this is what's so honest about Daniel 7. I love this. 
The sight of evil is so terrifying to him that despite the vision that he sees, in verses 15 to 28, he can't help but focus on the beast. Especially the little horn. He needs further reassurances. And his interpreter, whoever he is, senses a concern in Daniel for God's people who are suffering. That's why we see in verses 15 to 28, lastly, this wonderful reality of a believer's inheritance. Make no mistake, this is a troubling vision. Daniel was troubled in spirit at the visions that passed through his mind. They disturbed him, as verse 15 tells us. And then verse 17 tells us what we saw earlier, the four beasts or the four kings that will rise from the earth, but the saints, in other words, God's holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Yes. Okay, I'm glad about the yes. It's it's beautiful. Even the, the interpreter, you know, if it's an angel, he's excited. Yes, forever. I don't think that's just a note of reassurance. I think that's a note of yes, victory, triumph. And what a promise that is. Can you believe that? Given what you know of yourself, your sinfulness and your need of God, don't you think it is absolutely amazing that we share in the inheritance and the spoils of victory of the Son of Man? I'm still flabbergasted by that. That is an incredible thing. Through faith in him, we have access into the very presence of God. By believing in Jesus' name, we too will get to worship him, give glory to him, and praise him forever. Yes, forever and ever. But Daniel again is distracted. Hang on, tell me about the fourth beast again. (laughs) What does it look like? Tell me about it. And he's helped to understand this a little bit more. And the prospect of verse 25 is scary for Daniel. Daniel must have thought that exile in Babylon was bad, but he's thinking, man, it's going to get worse. And here's where the assurance comes in again. The rule of evil is going to be limited. Not only will the saints inherit a kingdom and possess it forever, they should know that that's what's to come. But right now, remember, the rule of evil is limited. Now, this is what it means with a time, times, and half a time. It's basically three and a half. Seven is the number of perfection. Seven is forever. Three and a half is a limited amount of time. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. In the end, this is never to be equaled again. If those days, he's talking about them like they've already happened. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. See what he's saying? God is in control. The time of suffering is limited. Victory is assured, though the battle is not yet over. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary tells the story of World War II, how the Germans were so confident of the unbreakability of their Enigma codes. But British mathematicians cracked it with what was called the ultra system. It basically meant that the Allies, for many, many months towards the end of the war, knew what the enemy was going to do ahead of time. And they knew that, but but they acknowledged, and acknowledged that by that, they basically won the war. That's almost the effect, really, that these words and these verses have on us. Let's face it. The enemy is a clear and present danger. 
But we know what's going to happen ahead of time. The court will sit. And even when it seems like God's people are being worn down and devoured, the power of the fourth beast will be stripped away completely and the rule of God's holy people assured. Verse 18. The saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever. Verse 24. The horn waged war against the saints and was defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And even verse 27. After the fourth beast is finally destroyed, the sovereignty power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the saints of the most high his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him where in the new heaven and new earth where every tear will be wiped away well all suffering will be gone and we will be with the lord forever how do we apply this or the take-homes for us. Well, firstly, the people of God must never be naive about the reality, brutality, or strength of evil. Some of us, when we look at the world, see only thrones. We don't really think about the principalities and powers and the spiritual warfare that the Bible tells us clearly we are engaged in. My question for you tonight is, where are the beasts in your vision? Where are, your, where are the beasts in your worldview? Having a healthy reality of the fact that, okay, evil does exist. But on the other side of it, some of us see only beasts. And let me ask you, where are the thrones in your vision? Some of you only see suffering and hardship and futility. But what vision does the Ancient of Days and Son of Man have for you? Let's not be naive about the reality of evil. Secondly, we live in a day when we worry about what's in Edinburgh, anyway, worry about what the secular society is planning next. No one's threatening us with convert or die. Yet across the world, our brothers and sisters are reeling under persecution, and we must never dare to forget them. And we must pray for them. Thirdly, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, let me be clear about what faith in Jesus, the Son of Man, involves. He presents before us a glorious forever, but it's pre- preceded often by a lifetime of hardship suffering first then glory that was the way of Jesus Christ and that's the way of those who follow him but I asked at the start is it worth it you might be asking the same question is it worth the cost of following Jesus if we have suffering because of that for believing in him well yes it is not only when you consider how he suffered for us but you will see that it's worth it when you see him coming on the clouds of heaven, bringing his kingdom in in all its fullness, inviting us to reign with him in the new heaven and new earth where sin and suffering and sea and beasts are gone and when the kingdom of God is our inheritance and we will say yes forever and ever, it is worth it. Trust in him. Believe in him. Let's take a few seconds to bow our heads and pray and then we'll sing.